You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we are thankful for your word that you give to us a clear revelation of yourself and our great triune God. And we have sung about your praise and given you praise this morning. And it is our desire now that we might hear of you in your word. The passage before us and the one that we have read earlier tells us that the Spirit of God is an anointing that each of us has who abides in us and he is our teacher. And so we pray today that your spirit would be our teacher that your word might be our focus and your glory might be our everlasting concern and joy. May you be honored here in and amongst your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 14, we are looking now at the second passage in this farewell discourse that has to do with the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I suggested to you some weeks ago that uh, the Holy Spirit is not just one subject among many that that Jesus keeps returning to throughout the course of the evening as if he forgot to say something about the Spirit earlier and now he's got to tell us something additional as he comes to it. Rather that the Holy Spirit really is the sort of the background or the backdrop of all of this discourse. This profound and new defining reality of the Holy Spirit dwelling within the people of God, ministering in and through the people of God, that is a reality that the Old Testament saints uh, did not enjoy the way that we enjoy it or with the intensity or the intimacy or the frequency that we enjoy that reality. And so this this forms sort of the backdrop of, of what's going to be new for the disciples. They were facing the reality that Jesus was leaving. That truth he has reminded them of over and over again. He is leaving, but he's not leaving them as an orphan. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit would now be different. The ministry of the Holy Spirit would be unique to them and to his followers from here on out. And as he is unfolding this and describing this to them, he's really talking about a whole bunch of other subjects, but all tied into the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so that is sort of an overview of the farewell discourse. And now we come to the second of four passages or four places where Jesus emphasizes or teaches on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. In the upper room discourse or this farewell discourse, there are four of them. One of them we have already looked at in verses 18, sorry, verse 16 through really into verse 20. Um, and we there took the time to sort of lay some groundwork that we don't have to, to cover again. I, I won't go back and repeat that because I promised you when we were going slowly back then that I wouldn't repeat this to you. But we talked about the Spirit of God being the third person of the Trinity and uh, what His ministry looks like in the church, that He is in submission to the Father and the Son and that He comes and that His abiding is permanent and that He is equal with the Father and with the Son, though in submission to them. And we took the time to kind of talk about that and the implications of it so that we could uh, handle now and look at the second passage on the Holy Spirit, which is beginning in verse 25 and 26. This is the second place where Jesus kind of brings us around to this defining reality again. And then there are two more in chapter 15, verse 26, and then in chapter 16, beginning in verse 5 and going through verse 15 is sort of a more extended section. So we're looking at the second one. In the first passage dealing with the Holy Spirit in chapter 14, the emphasis was on the Spirit of God who indwells us, lives within us, abides within us permanently, and who empowers us to do the work that Jesus has called us to do. And we saw in verse 12 that Jesus mentions greater works than those that He did would we do. 
And those, of course, are not greater in scope or greater in miraculous powers, but greater in, in far, as far as a worldwide scope, greater number of miraculous or supernatural things, not signs, but works of the Holy Spirit accomplished through His people. The work that Jesus does now through His church, through millions of people, is far greater in scope than what He did in while He was here physically. So in the first passage on the Holy Spirit, the emphasis is on the indwelling Spirit who empowers us to do the work. In this second passage on the Holy Spirit, the emphasis is on the indwelling Holy Spirit who teaches us and instructs us in the truth. In the first passage, it is about His comfort and His aid, His help that He gives to us. In the second passage, the help comes by not so much by way of power to do the work that God has called us to do, but help in terms of Him teaching us and instructing us in the truth. So that's verses 25 and 26. Let's read them together. Verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now don't miss the connection to the context. And I mean by context, what we talked about last week. What did we talk about last week? You don't remember. I had to recall it myself. We talked about the obedience that we offer to God as an evidence of our love. The one who loves the Lord Jesus Christ will obey Him and will keep His Word and obey His Word. Remember we talked about that? Well, if my evidence of my love for Christ is my obedience that I give to Him, then ought I not to know and remember and be instructed in what His Word is so that I might obey Him? That's the role of the Holy Spirit. Verses 25 and 26. So right on the heels of Jesus saying, you have to know My Word and keep My Word, obey My Word, Right after that, we are told that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to bring to our remembrance His Word and to teach us His Word. Now, there are some interpretive issues that we are going to get into down in verse 26 as far as what does that verse apply to and what is that promise that He will teach us all things and bring to our remembrance all things that Jesus said to us. Who is that spoken to and what does He mean by that? We're going to get to that in just a moment. But today we're going to look at Three, and by in a moment, I don't mean next week. We'll get to it today, I promise you. But we're going to look at three elements of the person and work of the Holy Spirit that are in this passage. The first thing that we are told is that He is holy. Second, that He is sent by the Father. And third, that He is our teacher. He is holy, He is sent by the Father, and He is our teacher. So let's look at, first of all, His holiness, the fact that He is holy. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. Now what are the these things? What what is John referring to? What is Jesus referring to by these things that I have spoken to you while abiding with you? Some people take this really narrowly and say that all that Jesus means there is the things spoken during this discourse, beginning in chapter 14 and going through the end of chapter 16, that those are the things that he is talking about. I would take it more inclusively and say this has to refer to everything that Jesus has said over the course of his whole time of abiding with them. Jesus is, is reminding the disciples, everything that I have spoken to you, this whole time that I have been abiding with you, and living with you. Those are the things that the Holy Spirit is going to recall to your minds. So He has in mind here not just the limited element of of this teaching here in this little passage, but everything He has said over the course of the whole three years. Why would I say that? Well, in verse 24, when Jesus says, He who does not love Me does not keep My words, and the word which you hear is not Mine, but the Father's who sent Me. What word is He talking about? just the teachings of this discourse that we are to obey? Or does he have in mind everything that he has communicated to the disciples while he's been with them? If in verse 24 he is speaking of everything that he has communicated to the disciples while he's been living with them, 
and, and teaching them. What makes us think that verse 25 only applies to this discourse? Verse 25 and 26 have to do with everything that Jesus has told the disciples over the whole time that he has been abiding with them. So look at verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. There are two titles given there to the Holy Spirit. The first one is Helper, and the second is Holy Spirit. But the Helper. Do you remember what that verb, that word means, the Helper? It's used four times in John. In all four of the passages in this upper room discourse, uh, John or Jesus uses that term, that title, Helper, to refer to the Holy Spirit. If you're taking notes, you will find it in chapter 14, verse 16, chapter 15, verse 26, and chapter 16, verse 7. Those are the other three references to the Helper. It is unique to John. John is the only gospel writer who uses that term of the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament where you see that term Helper used of the Holy Spirit. It is the Greek word parakletos, which means one called alongside to assist, to encourage, to argue a case, to support or to defend somebody. And, and that is a perfect word to describe the work and person of the Holy Spirit. One called alongside to do that on behalf of God's people. Back in chapter uh, verse 16, when Jesus uses the word helper of the Holy Spirit, he refers to the Holy Spirit as another helper, meaning another of the same nature and the same kind. And remember, we saw there that that indicates his deity. He is not another of a different kind. He is another of the same kind as the Lord Jesus Christ, whom John calls our helper, our parakletos, our advocate, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. So the Holy Spirit is another Jesus, in the sense. Not that He is the same person, again, but that He is so much the same nature as the Lord Jesus Christ, that when the Father sends the Spirit to be with us, He is in essence sending another who is identical to, in nature and substance, as Jesus Himself, to be the one who indwells us. So He is the Helper, the Parakletos. And then He is also called the Holy Spirit. Now elsewhere, in the other three passages that describe the Holy Spirit in this discourse, He is referred to as the Spirit of Truth. Not the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit of Truth in the three other passages. Notice in verse, again, if you're taking notes, that's in chapter 16, verse, or chapter 14, verse 16, chapter 15, verse 26, and He is called the Spirit of Truth in chapter 16, verse 13. But here He is called the Holy Spirit. And this is the primary way that the New Testament writers refer to the, to the Spirit or the third person of the Trinity as the Holy Spirit. John, only, only John refers to him as the helper. He is also called the Spirit of Truth because truth describes his character. Truth describes what he communicates. Truth describes just as much the Holy Spirit as it does the Father and the Son because he is the Spirit who is the Spirit of Truth. And remember, for that reason, because he is the Spirit of Truth, the world cannot receive him. Unbelievers cannot know him. Unbelievers cannot receive Him. Unbelievers cannot minister or function in the power of the Holy Spirit because they are locked in darkness and they hate the truth. They don't love the truth. They hate the truth and they love darkness. And because they are locked in darkness and ignorance, they cannot function in or have the Holy Spirit because He is the Spirit of truth. Over 80 times in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit or the third person is called the Holy Spirit. That is the, that is the primary title that we use to refer to this third person of the Trinity that He is holy. Now see, that title holy, that word holy, describes not His power and not His act or work of encouraging the saints. It doesn't describe His intellect or His will. That word holy describes His character and His essence. And that is what should be of most precious value to us as Christians, that the Spirit dwelling on us is the Holy Spirit. Is He the Spirit of truth? He is. Is He the all-knowing Spirit? He is. Is He the Almighty Spirit? He is. But He is the Spirit who is holy. In His essence and in His character, He is holy. That's why John says the one 
who is born again of the Spirit will himself be holy because he is the Holy Spirit. Show me somebody who claims to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit but does not live a holy life, and I will show you somebody who is a liar. The one who is born again by the Holy Spirit and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that is the one who lives a holy life. He is just as holy as the Father is. When we sing holy, 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 we are describing the nature and character of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why are there three holies in the New Testament, or sorry, the Old Testament and the song? I don't know if it's because they were describing the three persons of the Trinity or they're, or that the authors are just simply emphasizing that to the third degree, that he is holy, holy, holy. And if the Father is holy and the Son is holy, the one who represents the Father and the Son, he himself is holy. And the work and the business of the Spirit of God is to produce that holiness in the lives of his people. To produce in us a holy character and to communicate his holy nature. The Holy Spirit wants to conform us to the image of the Son who is holy. Now does this mean if we are living holy lives, does this mean that we are living perfect lives? It doesn't. Can you live a holy life without living a perfect life? Depends on what you mean by holy, because we use the term holy in two separate and distinct senses. By holy, we are using a word that means has the idea of being sanctified or set apart, of being different and distinct from the world. Should Christians live lives that are different from the world around us? We should be. We should live holy lives. Does that mean I am morally perfect and morally pure and without sin in my life and as holy as God does? No, I can live a holy life, a life that is different from the world, but it doesn't mean that I am morally perfect. So when I say to you, are you living a holy life? It doesn't mean, are you living a morally perfect life? Because the answer to that is obviously no. I will never have that and cannot ever have that until I die. But am I living a holy life in the sense that I am living a life set apart with the intention of honoring the Lord Jesus Christ and glorifying Him, being different than the world? In that sense, I do live a holy life. Because I seek to honor Jesus Christ. That is my desire and my drive. And in that sense, I'm different than everybody else. I'm holy in that sense. But am I morally perfect? No, I'm not. I strive for moral perfection. We do this by mortifying sin, by resisting temptation, by denying our flesh, by pursuing holiness without which nobody can see Christ. We do that in striving for that moral perfection to match in our conduct as we pursue holiness that which we are already, which is set apart perfectly unto God. So it is the Holy Spirit. He is holy. And it is the Holy Spirit who produces that in us. When I deny my flesh and I resist temptation and I mortify sin and I put it to death and I yield my members as instruments of righteousness rather than instruments of sin, when I do that, I am cooperating with the Spirit of God in His work of setting me apart and making me more holy in sanctifying me. When I yield to temptation and don't crucify my flesh or, 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 or mortify sin, and when I yield to it and give into it, I am working actively against the work of the Holy Spirit in driving me towards sanctification. So because the Spirit of God, He is holy and He is in us, therefore we can deny the flesh, we can mortify sin, we can put it to death, resist temptation, and pursue holiness and sanctification that we are called to pursue because He is the Holy Spirit. Second, not only is He holy, but He is sent by the Father. Look at verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. Whom the Father will send in my name. We get here a glimpse at the intertrinitarian work of the Godhead. And this, I think, is a glorious thing. 
The Father sends the Spirit in the name of, that is, in the stead of and on behalf of the Son. Back in chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper. So back in chapter 14, verse 16, we have the Son asking the Father, and the Father sends the Holy Spirit. Here in chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Jesus doesn't mention Him asking, though we know that the Son does ask the Father and the Father sends the Spirit. And if you really want to mix it up and be a little bit confusing, look at chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. That is the Spirit of truth. Hold on a second. Who's doing the sending and on whose behalf? Does Jesus send the Spirit or does the Father send the Spirit? Yes, that's both. And that's John's point and Jesus' point. You cannot think of the sending of the Spirit of God as something that is exclusively the work of the Father or exclusively the work of the Son. The Son asks the Father and the Father sends the Spirit and the Son sends the Spirit because the Father and the Son cooperate entirely and fully in all the aspects of our redemption so that the will of the one is the will of the other and the activity of the one is, in a sense, because they're all the same God, the activity of all three persons of the Trinity. So the Father sends the Spirit, the Son sends the Spirit, the Father sends the Spirit because the Son asks the Father to send the Spirit and the Father sends the Spirit in the Son's name. You see how all persons of the Trinity, you understand how glorious this is? That all three persons of the Trinity, they are cooperating together for our salvation together and that this is the will of all of them, that we would have the Holy Spirit. So He is sent by, the Spirit is sent by, and is the gift of the Father. And now third, He is our teacher. And this brings us really to the heart of what we're talking about this morning, that He is our teacher. He says in verse 26, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And once again, this is why I think the all refers to um, everything that Jesus had said uh, in His entire earthly life, and not just the things of this discourse The Spirit of God, the intention of the Spirit of God is not to just remind us of the things in this discourse, but to remind us of all that Jesus, all the truth that Jesus communicated to His disciples and to us through the Gospels, through the New Testament, over the course of His entire life and ministry. He will teach you all things that I said and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now here's the key interpretive question. What does this apply to and who is this, does this apply to? In other words, what is this promise? And is Jesus making the promise just to the 11 who are there? Or is this a promise that you and I have access to as well? That's a key interpretive question. So let's deal with the first question. Who is this addressing? To whom is Jesus speaking? To whom is Jesus speaking? So let's read the verse. I'm going to ask you a key question. We get done reading the verse. 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Here's the key interpretive question. Who is the you in that verse? Who is the you? Who is he talking to? He's talking to the 11 disciples, right? What would later be apostles? They are the ones that he is addressing. Well, you say, well, that's pretty easy then, Jim. I mean, that's a simple question. Who's the you? If it's the apostles, then that pretty much answers it. Everything here is just for the apostles and the 11 and not at all intended to be for us. But hold on a second. We recognize sometimes that a promise given to a small group is at the same time a promise given also to a larger group. And we have in fact done this all the way through John chapter 14, and you probably haven't even noticed it. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, to whom is he speaking? The 11. But I told you that he's preparing a place for whom? 
for all of us. When he says, I will return again and gather you to myself, to whom is he speaking? He's speaking to the eleven. But I told you that he is also going to return for all of us as well. And when he says to the eleven, the Holy Spirit will abide in you and he will be with you forever, I said to you that that also applies to all of us, not just to the eleven. So all the way through this chapter, I have been telling you that these promises are not just for the eleven, but for all of us. And yet none of you, not one of you has come up after the last 10 or 12 sermons and said, Jim, hold on a second, Osman, this was spoken to the apostles and not to us. Why did you not do that? You would say, because we don't want to contradict you. Oh, come on, seriously? My wife does it all the time. If my wife can do it, you can do it. Why did you not do that? Because you recognize that though these promises were addressed to the eleven, they are also elsewhere in Scripture, we are told that these same things are true also of us. I can go to other passages in the Scripture where it says that Jesus is preparing a place for us, right? That my home is in heaven. That I will be in the Father's house. So I take that promise to the eleven, and because I am told elsewhere that I also get to go to heaven, I can take that promise that was given to the eleven and extrapolate that to me, And say, well, that applies in this sense to me. Likewise, that he will return for us. I can look at other passages in Scripture which speak of the Lord coming back for his people. And I can say, though that was given to the eleven, other passages of Scripture teach me that that also applies to me. And though he says to the eleven, the Holy Spirit will be with them. I can look at other passages of Scripture that teach me that the Holy Spirit dwells in all of God's people. So we take these promises all the way through chapter 14. And we say, these, though they are spoken to the eleven, we are able to extrapolate that these also apply to the broader Christian church, to all of God's people in that sense. So this passage then, does it apply to just the apostles or does it apply to us? In order to answer that first question, we have to answer the second question. And I will come back to the first question. The second question being, what exactly is being promised here? What exactly is being promised? When Jesus says in verse 26 that He, the Holy Spirit, will bring will teach us all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. What is that promise? What is the promise that he will teach us all things? What does the all things apply to? What does that describe? Everything? Should I expect that the Holy Spirit is going to teach me the perfect recipe for barbecue sauce? You come over to my house and we have barbecue ribs and you say, Jim, this is the best barbecue sauce I have ever had in my life. I say, well, the Holy Spirit taught me that. The Bible says the Holy Spirit will teach me all things. Have you ever run across somebody who thinks that way? They're not uncommon, right? I was trying to hook up my widescreen TV and my my, my, my Blu-ray player and my Xbox, and I was just confounded by the whole thing. And then suddenly I looked, and the Holy Spirit just taught me, and there it was. I put all the pieces together. I don't know why the southern accent for that, but... (laughs) Maybe it's because every time I start imitating a heretic, I just slept into Osteen voice. But you've had people that think that way, and they think that I, I had no idea how to rebuild my engine, but I'm just trusting the Holy Spirit's going to teach me all things. No, we recognize that the all things refers to what? It's limited by the context. It's referring to the teachings of Jesus, and what he has in mind is not everything in the world, but all things necessary for life and for godliness and for obeying him, which is the point of the previous passage. So that's what the all things describe. It's not describing the Holy Spirit teaching us the answer to complex algebra, as if there's any such thing as simple algebra. It's all complex. But it's not the Holy Spirit who teaches us all of these things, but the Spirit of God who teaches us everything and instructs us in everything that that the Son has given to us and that is given to us by the Father and by the Spirit in Revelation. So He teaches us all things and brings to our remembrance all things that Jesus has said to us. That's the end of verse 26. 
So to answer the question, to whom is Jesus speaking or about whom is Jesus speaking, we have to answer that question. Is he describing here uh, everything under the sun or strictly speaking, only those things that Jesus has taught the disciple? Strictly speaking, he's addressing those things that Jesus has taught the disciple. That's what he's promising. Now, it turns out this is a very necessary promise for the disciples. And why would I say that? You read through the, the four Gospels and you kind of get the sense that, that the disciples, the apostles, they were kind of thick on some things. They really didn't get it, right? And we've seen this. We've seen this in John's Gospel. Back in chapter 2 when Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. John says he was speaking in the temple of his body. But it wasn't until after he was raised from the dead that the disciples went, ah, that's what he was speaking about. When he talked about destroying the temple in three days, I will raise it up, he was speaking about his body. It took him three years to catch on to that, to get that. In John chapter 12, after the triumphal entry, John makes the note, it wasn't until after Jesus was raised and glorified that the disciples remembered that these things had been written about him and remembered that these things had happened to him. The whole triumphal entry, the significance of that, went right over their heads. They understood it on an earthly ter- on an earthly plane as far as what the people thought they were doing for this Jesus of Nazareth. But the true significance of it and the fulfillment of prophecy The disciples did not get that until after he was raised from the dead. How many times did Jesus say something and the significance of it went right over their heads? All the way through the Gospels. How many times had he told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, delivered into the hands of sinners, crucified, buried, and I will rise again? How many times did he tell them that? And yet in this very text, on the night before his crucifixion, as Jesus has told them, I'm leaving you, you have Judas, not Iscariot, saying, so how is it that you're going to set up your kingdom without the world noticing? They were still, even at this late date, expecting the establishment of a kingdom. And how many times they told him, it's not the kingdom that I came to establish in an earthly sense. I came to die and to be buried and to rise again. See, they didn't get it. But then, at Pentecost, everything changed, didn't it? Everything changed at Pentecost. Suddenly, these 12 disciples who who could not reason their way out of a wet paper bag are confounding their enemies, confounding them. And, and the men who opposed them, enemies of the cross, were saying, how is it these men can walk intellectual circles around us? They've never been educated. These are Galilean fishermen. And yet we cannot answer them. What was the difference? How is it that these men who were so thick for so many years suddenly pick up pen and write books that are so profound and so significant in their understanding and their application and, the, and their detailing of the truth that it's almost otherworldly? It is otherworldly. What was the difference? It was Pentecost. Suddenly the Spirit came and He gave them understanding and He was their teacher in everything that Jesus had communicated to them. After Pentecost, Peter, James, and John read everything afresh. The Old Testament was like it was reading it for the very first time. Why? Because that was the work of the Spirit of God in bringing to their remembrance everything that Jesus had taught them and and instructing them in all the things that He had told them. That's the work of the Spirit. He is our teacher. So what is this a promise then? To answer the first question. So we answered the first question, but not really. We went on to the second question, and we answered that. Now we're back to the first question, which we never really answered when I said I was going to answer it. To whom does this promise apply? To whom is Jesus speaking? In one sense, and this is difficult. In fact, I was talking with somebody about this last night. This is a, this is a difficult verse to kind of pin down in one camp or another. Because in one sense, Jesus is describing a truth that is unique only to the apostles. He, the Holy Spirit, will bring to your remembrance everything that I said to you. That is, to the apostles, 
I believe, a promise of inspiration and inerrant authority. These 11 apostles were given a capacity by the Spirit of God to recall perfectly everything that Jesus spoke and everything that Jesus did and to write it down and record the truth inerrantly, infallibly, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Is that a promise in that sense to me as well? That I will be a channel of revelation? It's not, because nowhere else in Scripture am I told to expect that this same thing would be true of me. I am told that this was true of the apostles. So in a strict sense, there is an element of this that applies only to them. They did have perfect recall of what Jesus taught them and spoke. They did, even though on occasion they fell, they were sinful at times, they believed some things that were wrong. We have an example of Peter doing that even after his conversion in Galatians chapter 2. Though that is true, when they sat down to write Scripture and to communicate truth as apostles, as instruments of the Holy Spirit, they had perfect recall, perfect understanding, and, and perfect, uh, um, I was going to say articulateness, but that doesn't make sense. Obviously, I don't have that, of the truth of God. They had perfect recall and apprehension of, of the truth of God. But there is also a sense in which there's something here that is true about me and you as well. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. We read that in 1 John chapter 2. We have anointing who dwells in us. And He does teach us all things. Not that, not that we have perfect recall of everything, but we do experience the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and every true believer does. Let me give you some examples of this. Have you ever been reading through the, the Scriptures, and you come across the passage, and as you're reading through it, you think, wow, I never saw that before suddenly a light comes on. You see that verse in its context. You've read that verse a hundred times or more. But suddenly it is connected with its context and the light comes on and you get it and you see it and you, you think, oh, this, this shines a new light on everything else that I've understood. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Not that the Spirit of God is revealing to you new truth that was never there before, but that He is shining a light, an illuminating light on old truth that you never saw before. And when that happens, that is the work of the Spirit of God growing you in your understanding of truth. Or when you sit down with a passage of Scripture and you tear it apart and you look at its context and you look at its syntax and its grammar and try and see how it's all fit together and you outline it and you, you through a lot of hard work and discipline, mental thinking, you're studying Scripture in its context and you come to an understanding of the intended meaning of the text, meaning the author, the human author's intention and the Holy Spirit's intention, and you say of that passage of Scripture, I understand what that passage means and what it doesn't mean, but I understand what that passage means in its context and how it fits into the whole revelatory uh, plan of God. How did you arrive at that conclusion? Because you're brilliant and you're gifted? I don't know why the British accent there. Maybe because when I, I'm entertaining somebody condescending, I slip into Simon Cowell mode and Piers Morgan mode. But is it because you are brilliant and gifted? No, you know what is? That's the work of the Spirit of God. Illuminating and shining the light on old truths that are there that you never got before, but growing in your, you in your understanding of truth. Have you ever sat under somebody's preaching or teaching and they get done with a, a message or a lesson and you say to yourself, I never saw that before, but I see that in a whole new light and suddenly that popped, everything came to life and I understand how that fits in everything now. That suddenly all of this makes so much more sense. Has that ever happened to you? I mean, in other places that you've been, has that ever happened to you? If that happens to you, that is the work of the Spirit of God, taking His Word and taking a gifted individual whom the Spirit of God has gifted 
and using a combination of all of that and opening your eyes so that you might grow in your understanding of truth. That is the work of the Spirit of God. doesn't mean that you're more gifted than anybody else. doesn't mean that you're smarter than anybody else. It means that if you understand the truth and you are growing in your understanding of truth, that is the work of the Spirit of God who does that, constantly growing us in our understanding and apprehension of the truth because He is our teacher. Um, not only does it happen when we read Scripture and study Scripture and hear Scripture preached, because we can say that when the Word of God is rightly preached, that the voice of God is truly heard, and we understand it. But it also happens, and I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, when, when suddenly you're in a situation and an old truth that you knew from a long time ago, something you learned some other location or place, suddenly pops into your head and it's fresh. That ever happened to you? You're in a situation where you, you need to understand something or know something and suddenly a verse will pop into your head and you're like, oh, that's, that's right. That's my answer to it right there. This happens to me occasionally. I was, in fact, I was asking Deidre when this happened because within the last six or eight months, there was a weird thing that happened. This happens periodically in my life. And I'm not trying to give you just an experience, but an illustration. Okay. Don't build anything on my experience. But I was with somebody and I think it was either one of my kids or my wife. And somebody asked me a question. It was a theological question. And I, I gave an answer, gave the theological answer. I got in a passage of scripture and I quoted this, that, and the other thing. It was a great answer. It was the right answer. Turned out it was the right answer. That was good. And we got all done with it. At the end of it, and we were walking away, and I think it was Deidre or one of my kids said, how did you know the answer to that? And you know what my answer was? I have no idea how I knew the answer to that. It might have been a podcast I listened to, or a sermon I heard, or a book I read at some point, or I I saw it online or something, but buried up in here, buried, and I mean deep, beneath layers of sports statistics and useless 80s trivia and facts about the Reagan presidency, buried deep beneath all of that, was some little nugget of truth that bubbled to the surface right when I needed it. Because I'm brilliant? Yeah, my daughter's laughing. Yeah. No, it's not because I'm brilliant, because I'm I'm smart or I'm gifted. No, but there are these times when the unique ministry of the Spirit of God is to bring to our remembrance some truth that we have learned at some point. I have no idea where I learned that thing. Things happen to me. Something pops into my head. I have no idea where I learned that. But at some point I did. At some point I did. And it's buried back there. And the work of the Spirit of God is to call that to remembrance at just the right time. And he said, Jim, that makes you look really good. Trust me. There are 99 times out of 100 that I'm asked a question, and that does not happen. And my response is, I don't know. I have no idea. And that's all I can do. But on the occasion when it does happen, it's not some unique mental giftedness that I have. It's the work of the Spirit of God. He does this in the lives of His people. He brings to our remembrance things that we have learned, things that we need to know, truths that we have have rehearsed and heard years ago that are suddenly there, not because we are gifted or skillful or because we're mentally adept, but because the Spirit of God, that's one of the things that He does. He teaches us in the truth. And by doing those unique things, through the preaching of His Word, the reading of His Word, the study of His Word, and the recall of His Word, He brings to our remembrance those things that we have learned. Why? So that we might obey Him. Remember, that's the goal. Holiness and obedience. He does this that we might obey Him and show our love for Him and in obeying Him, we are cooperating with the Holy Spirit who lives in us to produce holiness in the lives of His people because He is the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit is not to reveal new truth. It is to make us conversant and comfortable with the old truths which have already been revealed. Nothing you've ever heard from me is new. And the day you hear something new from me is the day you ought to get rid of me. The Holy Spirit does not reveal new truth. The Holy Spirit makes us conversant with the old truths. He is holy, 
He is sent by the Father, and He is our teacher. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do thank You that You have given to us Your Spirit by which we might know You and by which we might know the truth and the work that He has done in our lives in, in illuminating Your Word and first opening our eyes to the truth of the Gospel and of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might see Him for as precious as He is. And then Your Spirit drew us to the Son and made us to know the truth and open our eyes to it. And now as, a light, as our lives progress and we pursue holiness, You continue to do that work in us. And so we thank You that Your Spirit does that work. We do not know the truth because we are smarter than other men or because we are more able than other men. We know the truth only and solely because the Spirit of God has willed to reveal those things to Your people. And so we thank You for that, for that work. And we pray that we might yield to You hearts of obedience as we understand and know the truth. May that work in our hearts continue as the Spirit of God teaches us and grows us in the truth through so many ways and by so many means. We thank You that You have appointed all of these means for our growth and for our pursuit of holiness so that we might yield hearts of obedience. May it be so amongst all those who name and know the name of Christ and love Him. We do pray in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.